Welcome to a new episode of the TBU Fin Commercial Podcast. In today's episode, we'll discuss the Airbus settlement scheme to see how firms operated at an international level to bring it to conclusion. We'll then discuss the Australian legal market and how it's on the uptrend and the reasons for this. In terms of business, we'll look at H&M and how it's planning to revolutionize its shops to adapt to the digital age. And then we'll consider Spotify and how it's expanding into podcasts to amplify its revenue streams. Lastly, we'll take a look at a very interesting discussion regarding smart contracts, what they mean for the legal industry and for legal tech in general. So let's start by discussing Airbus, who will pay a total of 3.6 billion euros to authorities in France, the UK and the US. The reason behind this is that it's to settle a four-year-long investigation into accusations that Airbus arranged bribes to sell its products between 2004 and 2016, and this was in violation of the international traffic in arms. Now that's a very interesting story, and also from a business perspective, it could raise very interesting discussions. But the reason why I chose to bring in this story and begin the podcast with it is due to how the five firms representing Airbus operated in the settlement negotiations. So the five firms were Clifford Chance and Auguste de Bouzy, who operated in France. Then we had Deckard in the UK, and Paul Hastings and Arnold and Porter K. Scholar in the US. These all operated as a group alongside the in-house team guided by Airbus's general counsel, John Harrison, who was really the mind behind this group. And John Harrison put together this team by looking at two main requirements. And it appears the first one was that all these firms have a leading white-collar defense practice. And the second one was that they were chosen in part for their long-standing relationships with national enforcement bodies. But the reason why I said this was a very interesting case in terms of operation of the law firms does not have to do with just a multi-jurisdictional level because this is not an unusual thing, especially with global firms. We constantly see deals being brought in between multiple countries, between multiple jurisdictions. But the challenges here, which made this story really stand out, go beyond this. And the firms had to really overcome challenges such as differences in national security laws, language of course, data protection regimes, national blocking statutes, and this was a huge deal. We're talking about 3.6 billion euros in the settlement payment, so obviously you can imagine the pressure under which they were operating. And when relating it to the differences between the countries, take for example France, who does not recognize a privilege for in-house counsel, but this could be very different in another jurisdiction. So what happens when we have a document that in France would not be privileged, but in another jurisdiction it would? You can see how these issues can arise in multiple scenarios and firms have to operate with one another to really overcome them. And that is the challenge that a deal such as this one brings to firms and lawyers. So going back to the story, aside from the payment which Airbus will have to make, we also have to agree to a light compliance monitoring from the French anti-corruption agency. Aside from that, it's a positive scenario for Airbus who has taken away this big grey cloud, let's say, that was hovering over it and can now look at its future in a more bright and certain way. And this all comes down to how these five firms were able to operate as this virtual law firm brought together by Harrison working between countries to bring this deal to a positive conclusion. So if you were to discuss this in an interview, I'd definitely draw to this point because a lot of interviews want to consider your interest in the law and what brings you there and why you want to pursue a career in this sector. And this could be a very interesting case which would link to your commercial awareness to prove that you see the future of the profession and how it's evolving and what brought you here and what will keep you there if that's what you wish to do.
So now let's talk about Australia and its legal market which is expecting another strong year in 2020. And this was thanks to a record spending on public projects and increasingly aggressive regulators. The legal market in Australia has had a very strong 2019 so this prediction is really building on that. And we've seen a very active M&A market particularly for more work in the energy sector. And when discussing this story there's two key reasons you should discuss for this growth. The first one regards regulatory authorities. So for example, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, who have become increasingly aggressive in how they deal with misconduct by banks and other financial institutions. And the second fact was a low Australian dollar, which made the local assets cheaper in US dollar terms. Just to give you some context, the Australian dollar fell from above 81 cents at the start of 2018 to under 70 cents approximately around now. So as we've said, the low Australian dollar makes assets cheap in the country, and this drives up foreign investment. In fact, we've seen a lot of capital coming from Asia, Europe and the US and all this is flowing into the country and creating opportunities for deals and for market growth. To this point, in the 12 months ended last September, there were 47 separate M&A deals in Australia and this was up from 40 the year before. And we've seen firms like Asher's, Baker McKenzie, Pinson Masons all realign with this view of growth and predicting it will continue throughout this 2020. Obviously, we're very strong growth and great opportunities. There is also competition. And this is something that firms will have to pay attention to in the region and are obviously dealing with already. But I thought this was a very interesting story to drive some uh, attention to the global stage of the legal industry. And particularly in interviews, this could be something you could relate if you are asked where you would consider opening an office or where would you consider investing the firm's resources. And this would really prove your understanding of how legal markets operate and what at the moment is driving the market growth in Australia and it's that region as a whole. This week we've seen how H&M is planning to reshape its 5,000 stores into what it calls logistical hubs for online shopping. And this follows from complaints from investors about the company's increasing physical presence, which does not align with the growth in online shopping. So similarly to other traditional retailers, H&M has been hard hit by the decline in you know, physical presence of customers who instead prefer to go online on Amazon or other stores online to have their clothes delivered. However, it's interesting to see how the company still believes that with innovation, its physical stores will continue to attract customers and are not a lost cause. And to add to this, H&M has had the biggest management shakeup in decades last week when the largest shareholder was replaced by his son. And this comes as the company surrendered its crown as the world's largest fashion retailer to Spain Inditex, which is the owner of Zara. To add to this, H&M will open about 200 stores this year, but this will mostly be in emerging markets. And meanwhile, it will close 175 in its established markets in Europe and North America. So what H&M is trying to do is to keep its physical presence in the stores but update them in a way that they can operate positively with its online presence and this is something which we've seen also IKEA do who is seeking to turn its stores into distribution centers from which it can send online orders and serve physical shoppers. So instead of choosing just to focus on the online market, these companies are instead trying to match what they already have because they obviously have a very consolidated network of physical stores, which grants them a great presence for physical customers. And the ability to link this up with an online presence to boost their sales would be ideal for the companies to enhance their growth. The next story we'll discuss regards Spotify, who's making a big push into podcasts by revealing it would buy the sports-focused digital media group 
The Ringer. Now, obviously, I thought this was a perfect story to discuss, seeing as we are on a podcast, and some of you may be listening to this on Spotify, so it makes it even more relevant as a story. And this push into podcasts is the number one priority for Spotify, and this was said by chief executive of the company, Daniel Ek. Now, Spotify had a loss in the last three months of 2019, despite having a very strong subscriber growth, and it's now turning to podcasts to differentiate itself from competitors Apple and Amazon. You probably remember from the last episode how we discussed Amazon bringing a challenge to Apple and Spotify by gaining 55 million subscribers, and probably Spotify who is still the leader in this industry, wants to ensure that it can continue to be such a leader by expanding its revenue streams into a market that's growing exponentially like that of podcasts. And Spotify really thinks of this push as something similar to what Netflix is trying to do in terms of its original programming and trying to create its own content. Spotify CEO said that Gimlet was another platform that Spotify bought this year is for us like HBO and the ringer is like ESPN and this backs up what we said before about it trying to consolidate its own programming and its own platforms to drive up its revenue. Spotify added 11 million subscribers in the final three months of 2019 with 124 million worldwide and this was ahead of the 9 million addition which analysts predicted so it was a very good result for Spotify. Now even if Spotify can own all these podcast services and boost its profitability a point which you should consider is how it's still locked into paying rights holders a minimum proportion of its subscription revenues regardless of how much listening moves to podcasts against music so it'll still be locked into these contracts to pay and as a result its revenue will decrease but to consider the trend as a whole as we said this podcast market is really growing exponentially and if you take a look at the US which is a huge market 32% of the US listens to podcasts monthly and this was up from 26% in 2018 so there's a great market there and Spotify knows and it's becoming the go-to platform for podcasts with Apple Podcasts so the key point here is the diversification and how Spotify is trying to create these new revenue streams to avoid itself relying just on its music and podcasts are a great opportunity for it to create also its own podcasts and maximize its profitability from them. And also as a result of this, increase its subscriber numbers as more people will join the platform also to listen to these podcasts. And this last story regards legal tech. And today we'll talk about smart contracts. Now smart contracts, you may have heard this term you may not be sure what it actually means. Just to clarify and give some context, usually when we refer to smart contracts, we mean a self-executing contract. And usually in these scenarios, the terms of the agreement between buyer and a seller are being directly written into lines of code. And the benefits of a smart contract is that it automatically executes the terms of an agreement, such as take a transfer of funds, for example, and this removes the need for third parties. The reason why I chose to bring smart contracts into today's episode regards the fact that you could drive a really interesting discussion on whether you think smart contracts could become the go-to for the legal industry or whether we'll should expect to continue to rely on traditional contracts. So just to start with some negatives about smart contracts, some of these smart contracts operate for a digital currency called Ethereum, and this has been experiencing some bugs in certain scenarios. As a result of these bugs, you can imagine the transaction would result into something that was not intended, so it would create issues for the parties involved. An associate general counsel at Citigroup said that traditional contracts offer much 
much needed flexibility since they cover a broader set of consideration and remedies. So this point relates to issues which could arise from the smart contract. If you find yourself arguing over it in court and you have your smart contract written in code, you can imagine it would create some practical difficulties in enforcing it or for the judges to understand it fully as it's quite rare for judges to understand code as it's something very new and you probably have to bring in someone that understands and can explain it. It will still overcomplicate the procedure unlike something like a traditional contract where it would be a much more direct process in terms of understanding what went wrong. So as we said, this is a very interesting story to discuss the advantages and balance them with the disadvantages of these smart contracts. We actually did a video on our YouTube channel where we run through what smart contracts are and what they do in one minute. And in that video, we looked at a residential transaction, considering how a smart contract would really be useful in that process because it would allow also all parties to have a clear visibility of what's going on and how the matter is proceeding so the bank would be able to see what's happening when it's lending or doing a mortgage and so would the client and so would the legal parties involved. You can imagine whether it's a simple agreement something like a smart contract would facilitate the work of lawyers and ensure that they can focus on more complex matters. So you could definitely consider these points and take your own thoughts on it and whether you think it would be something that could be implemented in the legal industry in the future or in the near future, could we rely on smart contracts on their own or would we still have to rely on traditional contracts for more complex deals and then have smart contracts come in and incorporate, so use both processes and we'll keep track on that and hopefully we'll discuss more stories about smart contracts in future episodes. So as always, thank you for listening. I hope you found this episode interesting and the stories useful. Do remember to click follow to never miss out on any episode. And as always, if you have any questions, do let us know through our social media or through our email. We'll be more than happy to help out. Aside from that, we hope you have a lovely week and thank you from the TBU team.